just gonna hold the mic. Fuck it. Uh, he's holding Fuck the it. mic. <clears throat> I'm holding the mic. I first saw you on TBS after school. Then I saw you again on Adult Swim 2. Look at you now. You're still a baby, a talking one too. That's so freaking cool. I love a baby named Stu. Just one ep and I'm cracking up. One more ep and I'm losing my lunch. Whoa, whoa, Stewie Griffin. Here I go again. My, my, how can I resist ya? Stewie Griffin, please just say the line. My, my, damn you vile woman. I think that was normal. I think that was normal too. Um, I think, you know, it's, I really hope uh, in quarantine, in this pandemic and everything that's going on, you know, I, I really do miss karaoke. Karaoke was one of the last things I did with a group of friends in public sure. um, pre pandemic. I feel like we got, you just got to bring the, we got to, instead of t- t- singing along, you, sometimes you just got to do the parody song and you know what? Um, I think in the future, uh, we should bring the parody, we should do the karaoke circuit with these parody songs. Because um, that was, you know, I, I feel like that was a truly great, not just uh, parody song in terms of the, the writing of the thing, but also in the terms of a uh, uh, an earnest performance. So just want to just want to give you a little claps for that one right there. Um, Jeff, you're too kind. You're too kind, and honestly... I wasn't going to say it, so I'm glad you said it. Yes, we are going to bring be bringing these out on the road once everything is COVID safe. Yes. I think yes. we will be doing – we have to talk to the booking agent, but I believe we're starting in, like, the deep, deep south, right? Yes, yes. We, we are trying to find uh, uh, deepest south you can. Um, what we're doing start, – we're starting – we're digging a hole uh, in okay. Alabama, and then we're going to invite all of our closest Alabama fans to that hole – and we're just going to sit cool. there for a little bit. Um, and then we're going to start our, our karaoke tour. Um, I am t- in talks with the good folks over at the Holiday Inn in Burbank. Yes. Some stage time there on the karaoke. Okay. Tour, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. listen, man, we need to fucking fire. I'm going to just say his name right now. Uh, Tyler Estevez, our booking agent. Tyler. You're fucking fired. You're dude. fucking Fuck out. Fuck you, dude. Tyler. No, you, Mason air. is putting in the work mason is actually yeah yeah yeah, fuck you tyler mason is putting in the work he's getting us things in alabama he's getting us things at the burbank holiday inn you're a fucking loser tyler get fucked mason is now the fucking booking agent and the host of the show and the guy who edits the show yes i'm the podcast host editor producer uh co-producer and uh booking agent i will also be um overseeing our soon to come uh, catering line, but that's way far in the future. Um, it's on the menu. It's on the menu. You know, you also forgot <laughs> yeah. to mention majority shareholder of Quibi. 
Um, yes, that's true. You and I are. You and, well, we're we're not. You're not a majority shareholder. We are equal footing. That's fair. Equal that's stakes. Fair. That's fair. Half half owners of Quibi. Um, any guess, ideas come through on the mailbag? Did you get any uh, any pitches from Quibi <laughs> these good, last couple days? That's a good question. I have not checked. Um, <laughs> the email. I the email just goes right to my phone with the rest of my Gmails. Need to figure out a way. To get this system um, yeah. streamlined, so I can actually, I actually know when we're getting real people email. Uh, no, just a lot of stuff from Stitcher. Stitcher has been are emailing you, me like a mad little uh, rat. Uh, are you are you uh, one of those guys who like? It's like that meme where it's like some people, and then no email <laughs> notifications, and then the other side is other people and then there's 67,000 emails in the in the uh, mail folder. Are you that guy? I have my my banner, uh the little the little red bubble on the top right hand yep. corner of my Gmail. <laughs> and this again, I'm going to say this number and I want to remind all of our fans, DMs are open, pretty girls DM me because and tell me you're so For impressed sure. with my the amount of unread emails I have in my personal yep. Gmail. Um sure. right now I'm sitting pretty at 7,981 unread emails. Okay, so that's a lot of emails, Mason. That's a lot of emails to read. Yes, I read. I do monitor it somewhat frequently. I just don't open or unsubscribe from a lot of stuff. But if my mom sends me an email, or a family member, or some person whose name I recognize, I uh, or the library will sometimes email me. I open those. What Sometimes if you got an email mm-hmm. from Brad Pitt? Would you open it? If I got an email from Brad at BradPitt.com. Brad, it's Brad, it's Brad at Pitt.me. If he sent you an email from Brad at Pitt.me, would you open that motherfucker or would you leave that on I would. On I'd see if he wanted to tell me something. I don't know why Brad would be emailing me personally. I, I do. That's think why you got to open the fucking email to find out. If it was from Brad Pitt, but sometimes I just see an email and it's from, uh, I don't know, uh, fucking... The, the chewy the gift box for your pet or patreon or whatever or a line you have a pet that you're not telling me about why do you get emails from chewy no i don't actually have chewy a co-worker of mine has chewy and sent a picture of her cat hanging out in the kitchen a lot of unopened cool. chewy boxes that were marked remarked upon in the in the slack dms there i uh in unfortunate cat news i was telling Noah about this off mic because this yeah. is a podcast we're recording called it's on the list uh with noah and mason i'm mason oh yeah, I'm and I am I'm the funny talking baby. But yeah, what yes. were you gonna say good. about a cat? Uh, I went to the doctor a couple weeks ago. Got for my yep. annual checkup. Got some blood drawn. Love getting my blood drawn, honestly. Uh, but just a little bit at a time. Just a little. Is that bit. true? Do you actually love getting your blood drawn? I've had it done a couple of times. In the first time, it was really painful and not fun. But every time I go, the nice lab technicians are always like, "You got good veins. We love to take your blood. You got nice, nice veins Damn. there." And I'm like. Okay, that's cool. This can be something that I'm good at, which is giving blood. And so, uh, I went. I got COVID tested at the end of um, eight, of the end of August. That was not a fun experience, but getting the antibody test where they took your blood that was more fun. In any case, that is more fun. Uh, doctor did a blood test, ran an allergy sort of um, profile on me. I am, uh, as I knew, I was uh, allergic to uh, pet dander, particularly dogs and sure. cats, and uh, everything. I was sort of mildly allergic to a little bit something that can just kind of you know it's like oh this kind of i don't know how to read this but this the numbers here make sense and then the, right. the cat number my my kind of cat king was like 
I don't, it, it was like nine points something or other. And I was like, this is really serious. I got to stop uh, agreeing to cats it for my friends. This feels like it's really going to fuck my shit up if I don't mind it Mason, carefully. Yes. Would you say that your cat reading level was <laughs> over 9,000? Would you say that? Yes, bro. I would say it was over 9,000. <laughs> what? epic. There's no way you can be that high. Do you know what that's from? Do you know what over 9,000 is from, dude? Yeah, that's from Dragon Ball Z. That was a very, very Good. early meme. I remember that being a yes. very, one of the uh, an, the earliest meme I was aware of. At least the earliest really? related meme. One of them. I don't know what the first meme I was aware of was. I feel like the first... I don't know if it would be considered a meme. Well, now that I'm thinking about it, I used to make memes. In uh, ninth grade, eighth and ninth grade, I used to make bottom top text, bottom text. Hell, hell yeah, brother! If I can find some, uh, I will put them on the Instagram. Yeah. Uh, so if you follow us on Instagram at uh, it's on underscore the list. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You might see some Noah memes from what would have that been? 2011, 2012, around then. So about. Uh, eight or nine years ago. So Wild. that would be fun. I'm glad you knew it was from Dragon Ball Z. Some people don't know that it's from Dragon Ball Z, and they just go, oh, yeah, it's over nine. It's over 9,000. And then I laugh so goddamn hard I can't do the podcast <laughs> anymore. It's kind of crazy that over 9,000 was the first number related, like, kind of meme or bit, and it took a little while for 42069. And now it's like you can't escape 42069 at all. No one remembers over 9,000. Uh, Mason, why are you saying your locker combination on air for 2069? That's what they used to call you. This guy, this is what they used to call this guy in high school for 2069 McGuire. It's true. It's true. It's true that for 2069, uh, well, Mason, before we actually, before we actually (laughs) dive into the show, (laughs) um, I am, I am also severely allergic to cats, not deathly allergic by any stretch, but I actually used to. For a long time, legitimately like six or seven years, I used to get allergy shots when I was a kid. Really? I don't think I ever got those. It was just like a take a Claritin or something before you go to grandma's sort of thing when I was a kid. Well, this there was like enough stuff for me, at least, that I was like allergic to or had sensitivities to. Oh, really? Where they were like, yeah, they were like, you might want to get allergy shots so that it's not. I still have them, but it's not as severe. So like. I can't eat shellfish, first and foremost. Never mm-hmm. had a shrimp, never had crab, never had lobster Unf- before in my entire life. That sucks. That's unfortunate. It is what I mean, I don't know. I've never had one. My dad is like deathly, deathly allergic to it. And I'm not oh, okay. like deathly allergic, but my uh my readings were over nine thousand, I guess we could say. So but cats, molds, dust, grasses, you know. I feel yeah. you. It's tough out there for those for those sneeze boys. We we are the yes. Oh, that's that's that is all right. So that's going to be our new moniker from now on. <laughs> We've hung up tired boys. boys. We're now the sneeze boys. Yeah, we're the sneeze boys. I we're like the that. we're the achoo fellas. You know, <laughs> someone somebody out there, one of you guys, get on the merch sneeze boy merch. I want to see hoodies. I want to see crewnecks. Yeah. I want to see water bottles. It's I not want, hard. I want some Helvetica t-shirts that just say the tired boys and the sneeze boys, and then it's blank. 
<laughs> the Tired Boys and the Sneeze Boys and Family Guy and albums and movies, movies and, and music. a gun. <laughs> There's just a gun on a gray T-shirt with plain white text. Yeah, very yeah. good merch. Very good merch. Very good merch. Uh, my mom. Did you officially? Your mom just texted you. What'd she say? Uh, she she actually sent me an email earlier that I forgot to respond to. I did open. It was regarding uh, It was regarding uh, uh, something in the city of Chicago and a potential birthday present for myself. Because my birthday is Whoa. November 16th. It'll be six days after this episode drops. Uh, Happy birthday, Mason. Are we going to record another episode that will drop? The day after. We will record an episode that drops... On the day that I returned to Chicago last year. Uh, oh. Uh, yeah, because okay. I flew back. Because legend, legend tells. Lore, show lore, lore show lore. My Put birthday last here. year. My birthday last year and my going away were the same day. Uh, we all, nice. Yeah, count full of folks. Mostly fellas, uh, if I'm being honest. Mostly fellas uh, popped up at the <laughs> idle hour. Thomas Erdarian got overcharged for drinks. <laughs> By a lot, right? By a lot. It was a. It was a pretty. He basically paid some. He had just shown up, got one beer, and basically <laughs> paid for somebody else's tab, like the way that I understand it. Um, fucked up, dude. Fucked up. We love Thomas. Thank you, Chef. Um, but yeah, no episode. Did you officially? Did you officially introduce the show, or was that just sort of a a thing to say? Did you say? Welcome to It's On The List, a show about underrated media, movies, and more, and music. I'm Noah Marger. With my, with me, as always, is my co-host, Mason McGuire. Did you say that? I, I said that earnestly. I did say that earnestly. I think five minutes ago. I think actually five minutes ago. Like okay. Legitimately five minutes ago at this point. This is great. Well, that's you know, this is what the show should be. Like, I love having guests. I love shooting the shit with folks over Zoom. But, like... <laughs> This is loose. It's almost 15 minutes. We haven't even touched on <laughs> anything related to what the show is about. To an about. album or a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the show, this is just the show. But before we actually, fuck you, this is the show. Uh, before we actually dive into the album, I said to Mason before we started rolling, make sure I talk about this. Please yes. remind me if for some reason I go uh, into the album first. This the conversation was brought up in the DMs with Thomas Saradarian. Mason and I have a little DM going with him. Yes. Uh, he brought up Mark's lunch. Mark is Thomas's father. Yes, Mark and S. And do you remember Mark S? Do you remember specifically what was that lunch was comprised of, Mason? Oh, man. It was like a ground, like a, a stone ground cracker, some like yellow mustard, some tuna, uh, and a muffin. A banana. And a banana. Yeah. It was just, <laughs> it was such a strange lunch to have it was like yes all the all the like kind of food groups were represented and you got a little garnish a little <laughs> a little thing of mustard the thing with the mustard that is really funny to me is it wasn't like a packet of mustard left over from like a takeout no. container it was like a full french's yellow squeeze bottle of mustard that's true it's fucked up that you would include it's implied you need that much mustard yeah. to get through <laughs> your absolutely fucking awful lunch that you've packed for yourself um, so that was that, that was that lunch. That was Mark S's lunch. And then Thomas said, no, why don't you go ahead and talk about Matt's, <laughs> Matt's lunch. And I said, oh, Thomas, I'm going to bring up Matt's lunch, but I have to wait until I see yeah. Mason tomorrow yeah. to talk to him about Matt's lunch. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you about Matt's lunch, Mason. Are you ready? I'm, I'm so ready. I've been waiting I've, with bated breath. <laughs> so I'm eating lunch one day. It's a, it's a relatively normal lunch. I'm eating a ham sandwich, an apple, 
some carrots. Okay. And okay. I think I had a pickle as well. So okay. pretty standard lunch, you yeah, know, yeah, for all intents yeah, and purposes. Yeah. Nice. How would you score that lunch, Mason? If you're making it from home, solid seven out of ten lunch. Uh, I agree. Yeah, solid seven. Respectable. Just above average. Very respectable. There. Yeah, you know, if so, you're getting it from a Panera Bread, definitely a different story, but making it yourself, pretty good. Yeah, if you're getting that from a Panera Bread, you got to rethink a couple yeah, things. Yeah, big time, big time, big time. <laughs> so I think this is not the Doughboys by any stretch, but Panera gets uh, one fork from me. Anyway, right. so uh, I'm sitting there minding my own fucking business, uh, and I'm living at home right now, and my dad comes in and says, hey, mind if I eat lunch with you? I said, no, not at all, of course. So he sits down, Mason. He has leftover pasta that has been warmed up, topped with cold chicken. It was cold. That is dish number one, Mason. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me pull up let me pull up the Discord real quick, <laughs> just to make sure that I I'm I'm double I'm checking putting my list and I'm checking it twice. I'm about to find out. Uh, if he's oh, I remembered. So then the second thing, besides the pasta, a salad with browning lettuce. It was browning. That's that's item number two of this lunch. All right, man. Okay. <laughs> and the the piece de la resistance of the whole lunch was a pancake that had been taken out of the fridge. And it wasn't just a pancake. He bit into it in dead silence and said, "Oh yeah, that's a that's a pumpkin pancake." <laughs> so, my dad's lunch was warmed up pasta, cold chicken, a browning salad, and a pumpkin pancake from the fridge. Maybe the worst lunch I've ever seen in my entire life. That will soon be available from, uh, it's on the menu, <laughs> our upcoming catering, uh, home meal kit Matt's delivery lunch. service. That's lunch. Matt's fucking lunch, Matt's dude. lunch, baby. Wow. I've I- never seen him stoop to that level before, to be honest with you. He's normally a pretty- nothing else in the, in, the, in the house? Nothing in the pantry? Nothing in dude, the- Dude, I don't know what the fucking problem is, because he's just like- He's so fine. Like, he's not a great cook by any stretch of the imagination, but, like, he's not, like, a fucking dumbass. <laughs> you know, like, he's, like, yeah, a he pretty might... smart guy, so I don't that's... know what's going on. That's that's interesting. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so that I just wanted to make sure I told everyone about Matt's lunch real I'm quick because it's we... one of the worst things I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad that we, uh, we've we committed this to uh, audio, kind of made this this a per- like a, a, a thing that will live forever, um, committed it to the audio medium. Uh, turn it into if art. anyone yeah. listening to the podcast right now wants to recreate Matt's lunch, please d- hashtag Matt's lunch on Twitter and Instagram. Send yep. us your photo of Matt's lunch, or if you just have a photo of a bad lunch, send that to us as well. Yeah, tell us about your worst lunch. I, not even, like, this week. If you have, a, like, a particularly bad lunch that you can think of, um, just just send that along our way. Man. <laughs> yeah, if you can, you can fucking dig up your worst lunch of all time, <laughs> just go ahead and send it to us for a chance that you might get read on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. go ahead to drudge up that trauma of eating the worst lunch you can think of. 
Or just pitch us the worst. I mean, within don't pitch us the worst lunch. Just think of the bad lunch you've had. That's yeah, it. Yeah, that's oh Jesus Christ. That's so funny. That's so funny. Most of I it sucks. It does suck. Um Wow. You wanna talk about the album now? Yeah, let's do it. Uh twenty minutes in. <laughs> This is this is good. This is great. You know what? No, you know what? This is appropriate. This is good. I was I was re-listening to the Dear Science episode not too long ago, and there's a, a decent amount of just fucking back and forth. So this is fun. This is what the show is. Why don't you talk about the album? You brought it on, oh, bitch. Okay, yeah, bitch. All right, <laughs> bitch, Mister White. Talk about the replacements. Why don't you, bitch? Okay, so. <laughs> Can't stop thinking about Matt's lunch, <laughs> but I'm going to push through. Okay, I'm going to yeah. push through. Okay. So the album we're talking about today is that is a, I love this album. Uh, this is my pick. My, my week to pick the album, Mason's week to pick the movie. Uh, you'll tell you about that when we get to the movie. We're doing it yeah. a little bit different <clears throat> this season when Mason, when Mason's up to bat uh-huh. for the movie, at least. But, This week, we're talking about 1987's Pleased to Meet Me by, of course, The Replacements. Claps, claps, claps. I'm holding the mic so I can't actually clap, so I'll snap instead. Um, Mason, before I do an intro to the album, I just want to know, do you know, had you known anything about The Replacements prior to this? Were you a Replacements guy? What was your history with them? Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot. Um, My way into The Replacements was, was through Rock Band 2. The song nice. Shelton showed up there, and I'm like, I like the song a lot. And uh did not think so since that song was just kind of in the general rock band stew, did not realize that there was this whole other thing attached to them. And when I get to college, uh replacements are very big. Or at somewhere in between rock band time, end of high school, I start to understand that there's this band called the Replacements that have something of a uh, uh an influence or an influential band. And then I get to college, my buddy Max former roommate, Shout longtime out. friend, Max, huge in the replacements from Minneapolis himself. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Huge replacements in Husker Du had, uh, to the point where he liked this music so much that I was a little bit too intimidated to get into it myself. But gotcha. at some point, the song Can't Hardly Wait came into my field of vision, my field of listening. And I really attached myself to that song. I think my freshman year of college, early sophomore year of college, 2013 times, basically, and then throughout my life since then, coming in and out on the replacements, listen to their albums. That's it. They're a good band. I like them. I don't like that's the thing. I always I always like I like them, but I always feel like other people have a stronger attachment to them than than I do necessarily. Um like this is a kind of foundational um band that that one gets into in the Midwest at least. Um I, I don't know about the rest, but it feels like these guys are huge in the Midwest here, so they're kind of local heroes, not to not yeah. to you know throw it back to a movie we've watched long ago on yeah. the pod, but in a way they kind of are. You know, Minneapolis does have a scene without a doubt. You know, Prince came yes. out of Minnesota. Yeah, Lizzo yeah. has come out of Minnesota. So there have been people to come out of Minneapolis yeah. and the surrounding area, but the replacements don't really come up when you first think of. Minneapolis bands, or even I would argue Midwest bands. I don't think they come no, up no. first or even second for a lot of people in general. To be honest with you, yeah, I it's it that part of their identity is so um, essential to them, and I think it's, it's um, uh, the, and the fact that they were sort of like 
you read about the replacements and then you read about big star kind of in the same sentence, you know? Uh, um, and I think that they, it's interesting that big star was such an influence and are kind of also like contemporaries almost of the replacements or they kind of occupy the sort of same, I think level of influence for a lot of folks. Sure. Uh, And it's interesting that to me, at least that, that big star is a, was a decade old band roughly. Uh, and their influences, I don't know. I like Big Star a lot too. Uh, I like this kind of power poppy stuff, though. Like they they kind of fit into fall into a big, huge kind of stew um, with me. All that to say that like I liked, I loved a lot of these songs. I'd heard all these songs before. I'd heard this whole album before, and it just kind of fit into one sort of pot. And I really appreciated being able to accept, take this album on its own this time, and really give it um, just a good, a good, decent listen. Uh, but so you had heard the album in its entirety then before? Yeah, I had, but like I said, um, I had heard it in, in its entirety, but it just didn't, aside from the songs that I knew already that I liked, it didn't it just for whatever reason had not stuck with me until this listen. Um, sure. so that's, that's, that's it. That's me on the replacements. Um, where are okay. you with, where are you with pleased to meet me and where are you on the, on the replacements? So <clears throat> as is <clears throat> normal on this show, think a lot of the time you and I or our guests or whoever when they're talking about how did you get introduced to a certain band there's usually like two main ways I think that people get introduced to music nowadays nowadays you know that's a good that's a good young person phrase to use nowadays yeah uh their parents show them because their parents are into it Mm -hmm. so it's like a like a family thing there where they show you the music or your mom or your dad whatever or you happen to hear it on Spotify one day because it is, you know, has some sort of genius recommendation based on what you were listening to before. Mm -hmm. Those are, I think the two main ways people discover music in our current music listening climate. This is the latter for me. And I was just about to go to college when I heard the song can't hardly wait for the first time. Yeah, That's the right time for that song to hit you. That is the perfect time. It was literally mere months before I drove down to uh, California to go to Chapman, to go to storied Chapman (laughs) University uh, film school down there. And uh, I had heard that song. And, you know, there's just sort of like this, regardless if you're going to school 10 minutes down the street uh, from where you grew up or 10, you know, hours away from when you where you grew up. There is still an anxiety of starting college because it is sort of this like demarcation. It's sort of this benchmark. It's this rite of passage, I guess, for a lot of people is, mm-hmm. you know, go off and live on their own, you know, in a controlled somewhat environment, sort of have a trial run at being an adult. <laughs> and I heard Can't Hardly Wait, which is the last song on the album, you know, right before I went off to school. And it just spoke to me so much. And to this day, I still think that the lyrics of that song are this like amazing work of writing because it's all somewhat generally specific about a certain thing. The whole lyrics of the song are like specific enough where you know what they're talking about, but they have so much sort of room for interpretation Mm -hmm. because of how generalized and how general some of the stuff that he's talking about is and those, those feelings that he's talking about are. And to this day, can't hardly wait. Just that phrase is like seared into my brain. So I heard this song, listened to it on repeat before I went to college. Then I didn't really think about it that much. Then like sophomore year of college, I listened to this album 
probably all the way through for the first time, like one day I'm living off campus at that point, kind of forgot about it. Now that I'm back at home, I sort of rediscovered it back in the beginning of quarantine and our pandemic, I guess, whatever. Mm-hmm. Fuck it. I don't care what you call it at this point. Who cares? Yeah. So I just rediscovered the album and I love it. I think every single song on this album is good straight up. So that's where I'm yep. at with uh, this album. The, that's where I'm at with Please to Meet Me and the Replacements. Uh, let's let's talk about the album, Mason. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I just first things first. Don't want to get too ahead of this. Uh, you're absolutely right. Every single song on this album is good. It's one of those only good song albums that you hear about so much about. Uh, yeah, one of those one of those mysterious only good song albums that like you know. What, why can't all albums just have only good songs on it them? It seems you know? to me like it, it shouldn't be that difficult to write an album with only good songs. It seems to it seems today that all you see, see are albums or, that don't all have good songs uh-huh. and sex on TV. Exactly. So, exactly. There's that. Exactly, yes. What's your favorite track on this album, Mason? Is it Can't Hardly Wait? I Can't Hardly Wait has a sort of like the Lifetime Achievement Award. And this time, the big um sort of the standout sort of, we'll say, quote-unquote, new listen for me was Valentine. Uh, sure. Yeah, I like, and I also really like Skyway. I think Skyway also really took me by surprise, just because, sure. um, you know, punks are sincere. Punk music is sincere and nice, but you know, it's, 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 and it's nice when you are reminded of that. And uh, in the song Skyway, Kind of this like this this pint this longing this pining song uh, that I really appreciate. So, and it's are- stripped down, which most of the songs on the album are not. Most of the songs on the album actually crank up the intensity because this was their first like major label album. Everything yeah. else that they had done prior to this had been independent or this small label. And I don't know. Have you actually heard Tim? Or let it be. I have. Um, it's kind of the same story with the rest of the replacement stuff, where it's out of just kind of curiosity and the need to hear it. I've popped in. I listened a little bit to Tim before recording, just so that I could have a little more context for that, because I think that's kind of considered uh, one of the best ones, or if not the best one. And uh, I really, really, really do like and appreciate that album. And I think I just need to give it the time that I gave. Um, Please to meet me here, but it's definitely not a. Um, I, th- this album is very concerned with them sort of selling out almost. Uh, totally. Yeah. And- I mean, the fucking album cover is a, you know, record executive seemingly or a, or a suit, you know, we'll just call it a suit. It's got the white button up shirt, the tweed jacket, the nice Rolex, and then the ring yeah. shaking the hand of what we assume is Paul Westerberg or one of the replacements, which is just a fucking torn up you know, long sleeve shirt. So already you kind of know the anxiety uh, of what they're feeling, which makes sense knowing the fact that they basically played in a garage, you know, what was it? Eight years prior to this when they were, you know, first starting out in the late seventies. And now they're, you know, that's a pretty fast rise, I guess, all things considered. Now they're on a major label and uh, you know, that's pretty impressive. 
all things considered, especially back then when I feel like it's harder to get noticed, or maybe now it's harder to get noticed because there's more saturation. Either way, it's hard to get noticed. It's hard to get noticed, definitely. Yeah, it's I, I don't know too much. The, the thing that I like about The Replacements um, is it's one of those all-or-nothing kind of bands where sure. uh, you know either every single thing about the band or you're functionally a novice. And I would put myself in the latter category also with, with that one, honestly. Um, but I do love that they have this... Um, I don't want to say that these songs sound polished, but there's a nice, they're, they're well-produced, um, incredibly written pieces of, of song craft just in general, just like really brilliant bits of either of, of, uh, of songwriting from Paul Westerberg um, or the bass by Tommy Stinson or the drums by Chris Mars here. Um, it's just a great band uh, that had its share of issues as all great bands do. Uh, right before this album was released, they kicked out founding member or Founding member Bob Stinson left due to creative differences or some other thing that, uh, very vague what happened in my research here. But, um, this is kind of a transition point for the band, I think, in a really interesting way. Uh, and I think the point that I was getting to is that even though this is like, it's, it's, it's great studio driven, straight, great, it's a great studio rock album. Uh, and you just hear about these shows that these guys have put on. It was sounds like absolute, just like chaos. Like you weren't even sure if you're going to hear any replacements music, music at the shows sometimes, which I think is just like such an interesting relationship and sort of dichotomy that this band has. Uh, I'm sure it's a, a similar same with other ones, but I just feels for whatever reason like that was the defining thing about this group was that they were a bunch of fucking drunk kids just just playing fucking music and doing whatever. And they get the shot at the big time with this. And I like that this is the album that was put out. That was a lot <coughs> that I just said. A lot of thoughts there. But um... <laughs> yeah, it's okay. No, okay. it's good. Because, I mean, you know, you're talking about how the, you know, how if you're going to see this band, you don't even know if you're really going to hear their music, which is important because that sh- that says and that shows that people were going to see them they because them they wanted them. to see them. Yeah. 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 They liked them for who they were. They weren't going because they had one hit song, you know, that they were going to see. This wasn't, you know, like a, who's a, you know, like, I can't a Lou Bega. Fucking, <laughs> yes. There's no Mambo number five songs My friend, for the replacements. A friend of mine. Someone, you know, go to see Lou Bega. A friend of mine said that they went to see Lou Bega back in Mambo number five days. And he played Mambo number five twice. <laughs> Damn, at the opening and at the beginning, baby. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's what it was. He opened the show with that, did his music, and then left. Um, That's why people paid to go see it, because they couldn't get a fuck enough of Mambo number five. And Mason, I have to say it, where are Mambos one through four? (laughs) Where are they? Why can't we have them? That was I was gonna actually get that get a pitch ready for you for the quest for Mambo's one through four, uh, for a Quibi show. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we talk? Why don't what you know? You want to do that now, or you want to do that after after we record? Let's do that after we record. I can run. I'll <laughs> okay. run that past you. Um, I'll run that past you later. Yeah, I kind of already see how it's going though, but yeah. I understand it's like a behind the music type thing. No yeah. worries, I got you. Yeah, um, cool. But they're going. They're, you know, fans are going to see. Them, they want to see the energy that these people are bringing. Whether that energy is natural uh, occurring energy or uh, liquid courage, yeah. uh, as the older folks uh, in our lives like to say, they wanted to go see this band. It didn't matter what they were playing; they were there for them. Uh, I'll talk about it. I think later uh, in the fast facts. I can't remember off the top of my head, but like they were banned from SNL. Yeah. They're one of the few people 
groups or hosts to ever be permanently banned from the show. That's like a weird badge of honor because yeah. Steven Seagal is in that category as well. Yeah. Um, who else? Who else off the top of your head is banned from SNL? Can you oh, think of anybody? Uh, Elvis was Elvis Costello was banned, and then that That's ban right. was lifted. And asterisk, little caveat on that fast fact because I do like that fast fact. Paul Westerberg, as a solo act, returned in '93 to SNL, but the replacements as a unit. Never returned after that moment. I have I have the list right here in yes. front of me of people banned from SNL. So who's on this list? This? Are they who's on this list? <laughs> How many people are on this list? Hold on. Is it ten? No, it's a complete list. I will just give you the top five. How about that? Okay. How is this? Is this right. alphabetical or what's the organization? Here? No, it's it's just chronological. I don't know <laughs> okay. when this fucking thing was updated. Anyway, I'll just give you. I'll just list some names. Ten. I'll list ten names. Okay. Fear. I don't know who Fear is, but they were you banned don't know from them. the show. It's too bad. Um, notorious murderer Robert Blake was banned in 1982, but not for murdering. I think his wife is who he murdered. Uh, I don't believe that. It, I don't know if they were romantically involved, but Robert Blake did shoot a lady. Uh, it, they can't be he shot a lady, yeah. and then didn't he go back to get his gun or something insane like that? I don't know, man. He's not a good dude. That that kind of that that shit that that Phil Spector shit also just gives me a bad feeling. Yeah, I, Phil Spector's bad. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's no good. Uh, so Robert Blake, Phil Spector's hair though when he was in the courtroom, that's top all time hair, all time hair. One of the absolute, uh, one of the absolute best, and also Al Pacino in that wig in the HBO movie about the Phil Spector trial. Uh, pretty good. Uh, well, Al Pacino did some weird, like he was on a lot of TV HBO movies. movies. Yeah, he, yeah. He was, he was did joke- you see the one about Kevorkian? I didn't see the Kevorkian one. Um, the only one of those that I saw was the Bernie Madoff, Robert De Niro one, directed by Barry Levinson. Oh, The Wizard of Lies. The Wizard of Lies. Yeah, I watched that. You know one. what you? <laughs> you know what you? You know what you are? You're the Wizard of Loneliness. <laughs> that's that's what you are. Do you know what that's from? No, what's that from? That's from Nathan for you. The oh like, fuck, m- that's what the uh, the, yeah. the um uh the pi the tells porn him. star. Oh, yes, yeah. Who's also isn't he also a porn? Didn't he do porn? Like, isn't that like one of the big revelations that the guy did porn? He's like, you know what you are, Nathan. You know what you are. You're the wizard of loneliness. <laughs> I gotta rewatch I Nathan for you. I I gotta rewatch Nathan for you. That's all I gotta say. But so, who else is banned from SNL besides in, no? Murder? In 1983, yeah. Andy Kaufman, which is sad because he was like one of the first guys ever to be like a guest on SNL. I think he's Damn. in the first episode of SNL. Yeah. So sad. Shout out to Andy Kaufman replacements in 1986. They got banned. Steven Seagal, 91. Uh, he's apparently just a huge prick. So shout out to Steven yeah, Seagal he's, for that. No, n- yeah, no, he's no good. Oh, how did we forget this one? This is like one of the biggest bands of all time. Sinead O'Connor, obviously banned. So disrespectful. Up the Pope. So disrespectful. Sinead doesn't deserve that um, at all. She's frankly in the right, and uh, you hate to see you hate to see her taken down like that. Uh, yeah, sad for Sinead. Sad for Sinead. Uh, in the chat. very sad number. F- I don't know why they're banned. It's I'm going to read it here. It says number four in 1983. Cypress Hill is banned. From huh. SNL, it says the Latino hip hop ensemble and diehard cannabis advocates got themselves permanently disinvited to the show after DJ Muggs sparked a joint on air in the 1993 episode. At the time, recreational and medis- medical marijuana was prohibited. Blah 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 blah. Okay, they probably wouldn't be banned now. No, definitely not. That would be a great if they got if they lifted the band, the band now and just had Cypress Hill back on. That would be like I think. 
I would walk tune into that. I would tune in if Cypress Hill showed up to SNL one of these days. Absolutely. Um, number three, I guess, for doing chronologically in 1984, Martin Lawrence got banned. Huh. Um, oh, yeah, this is crazy. It says, during his monologue, Lawrence launched into a full digression on female hygiene. The rant was so awful, it's been scrubbed, no pun intended, uh, from syndication. When the episode is re-aired, NBC's plays the following voiceover statement monologue, and it basically just says, uh, in summary, Martin feels or felt at the time that the failure of many young women to bathe <laughs> thoroughly is a serious problem that demands our attention. Uh, he explores this problem, citing numerous examples from his personal experience and ends by proposing several <laughs> imaginative solutions. That is awesome. Good. Good. I'm glad that he got banned and also that he said it. I'm glad the whole thing happened, baby. Damn. Wow. <laughs> Mason, you are fucking shell shocked right now. I'm speechless. Um what what more can you what can you <laughs> Good for Martin Lawrence, dude. And he he only got bigger from there, to be honest with That's you. So, so he honestly funny. That's so He got the last funny. laugh on that he one. He did get the last laugh on that one. Um I wanna know what that monologue was. I'm sure it was dude, if, awful, if, but I wanna know what that monologue find was. It. That'd be a good one. That would be cool. Uh, anyone else notable that's been banned forever from SNL? Yeah, two people. Rage Against the Machine, uh, just because they're fucking Rage Against the Machine. I, uh, it says here uh, they decided to take a stand against Forbes because Steve Forbes was hosting uh, American Flag upside down on the stage, and then they didn't even, you know, were an ass back. Basically, uh, also, and then the number one. It's also wild that Steve Forbes hosted SNL. Dude, I guess so. Fucking weird. And early, early two thousand. When was this? Ninety six. Yeah, it's a weird. It's, it's a weird, weird situation. It's um, weird. and then the number. The last person that says that was banned uh, on this list is Adrian Brody. It says the star of The Pianist ran afoul of Lauren Michaels by improvising on air before he introduced the guest Sean Paul. Well, there's more to it than that. Brody didn't just ad-libbed. He donned a dreadlock. Oh, I forgot about uh, this. Yeah, he donned yeah. a dreadlock wig and spoke in stereotypical Jamaican accent before turning the show over to Sean Paul. I forgot about that. That is fucking crazy of Adrian Brody to have done that. Yeah, I... Wild, wild 2002 that guy had. When's the Oscar? Did you ever see his Oscar speech for winning the actor for The Pianist? I've only seen him kiss Halle Berry. I think I can't remember what the speech is, but he literally tells the music people to like stop. He's like, "Stop! I'm not done talking," and is like very insistent that he's not going to leave the stage. Come so, on, dude. kind of a weird guy, it seems. Come on, yeah, I weird, weird, weird guy. Uh, anyway, anyway, I love this fucking album. Yeah. <laughs> I love. Pleased, it's pleased to meet me. Uh, Paul Westerberg uh, did have a little bit of a solo career, and yes. I didn't realize this. But the song, do you know the song Dyslexic Heart? Does that song mean anything to you? Uh, no. Okay. Well, that's a Paul Westerberg song. I didn't realize that Paul Westerberg was the guy from The Replacements because it sounds very different mm -hmm. from The Replacements. It's like a pop song that looks like just like a guitar from what I can remember, but obviously like a backing track. But sure. he's like, I don't mean to correct me. I got a dyslexic heart. Nah, 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 nah. Like literally people go nah, 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 nah in the song. Okay. So it's like full 180 from uh, pop punk, power pop, the replacements shit. Um, and I do think it's interesting to note, I did listen to Tim and Let It Be over these past couple days just to sort of get an idea of what they were 
like mm-hmm. prior to releasing Please to Meet Me. It's not nearly as high production value. It's much more stripped down. Let It Be is much more punky. Yeah. Uh, like pretty much like straight punk, except for the song Androgynous, which yeah. is a great little like jazz piano bar piece about people who cross dress and like you can't, you know, you don't know what gender they are just by looking at them, which is a great song. Fantastic song yeah, off that album. There's a great um there's a like a video of I think Laura Jane Grace, Miley Cyrus, and one other person, if I'm remembering correctly, singing that in like kind of a backyard. Uh Laura Jane oh, Grace that's from cool. uh Against Me, I believe. I don't know. Uh that Androgynous is a uh, it's a very catchy number, um, but it is in, it's very catchy number. Very catchy, yeah. But there, there are others. I yeah yeah yeah. That's necessary context. Um, this is a pretty. This is a really good like pa. The, the, there's a poppiness to this that I really like, and I think to this particular album that really resonates with me. That I really like. What's what are your favorite tracks on this album? Did we did we cover that yet? Um, my favorite like tracks themselves. You know, I'll. I'll say it. My my favorite track on this still is "Can't Hardly Wait." You know, sure, like I think yeah. that that one, like you were saying, that one still gets the Lifetime Achievement Award as far as I'm concerned. "Skyway" is a great song. Uh, "Never Mind" is a great song. "IOU," the song that opens the album, is a great song. It really fucking is like, all right. We are still the replacements. We just sound louder now. We yeah. sound fucking, you know, well-produced. We are actually in a studio and someone was, you know, mixing and chopping it up for us. And it's, yeah. not, as, it's not as DIY or at least as DIY could be back in the 80s or whatever. So those are mine. Uh, I don't want to spend an insane amount of time on this. I did go through, pick my favorite lyrics from each song. I won't read each song. I'll just yeah. read the ones uh, that I really like. Uh, in Alex Chilton, which is one of their most popular songs, uh, and the children by the million wait for Alex Chilton to come around, round, round. They sing, I'm in love. What's that song? I'm in love with that song. Yeah. Which apparently is like what Paul Westerberg said to Alex Chilton when he like first met him for the first time. He's like, oh, I love that song. And he was so starstruck that he couldn't remember what song he was talking about. And Alex Chilton was just like, oh, Yes. Okay. Yes. I know exactly what song you're talking about. And I don't know what song it is off the top of my head, but it's just like this weird little interaction uh, that he had. But Alex Chilton, mwah, beautiful track. Mwah, love it. Do love that song. My, I wrote down my favorite lyric for that one was uh, Invisible Man Who Can Sing With a Visible Voice. That's a beautiful lyric as well. I mean, all these lyrics are beautiful. That really Paul is. Not a great to jump. songwriter. He's a great lyricist. Like, it's, 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 it's pick your poison kind of with his, with his fucking lyrics on this one, you know? Pretty much. I don't like this 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 song and then one other song that I'm gonna bring up here in just a sec are probably my least favorite on the track on the album, but it's just because they're so different from everything else, and that's nightclub jitters and shooting dirty pool. Yeah. They really do just like stand out. Not in a bad way, they're just of the songs on the album. They really are my least favorite just because they aren't as like stereotypical replacement tracks. Um mm-hmm. Nightclub Jitters specifically, because it literally sounds like an old speakeasy it, like just yeah, come to life it does I, I like those two songs because or i can appreciate those two songs because it feels like he's crystallizing into the he's crystallizing the experience of a couple really shitty nights that he had uh totally. and it's kind of um it, what's good about what i really like about them is that it makes you feel uh like kind of 
it, it the it there's a hyper focus to the the writing and like the kind of the the details in that song there but they're also just so anxiety inducing and they at the end i'm just like i'm glad that he lived that life so i didn't have to honestly like it sounds uh rough yeah it sounds like rough going well, brother well you can tell he's writing from a very honest place like he's yeah. not sugarcoating it but he's giving you his perspective on it which is certainly i lived it this is what it's like yes it's fun to a certain extent but yes it also uh, has its downsides. Yes. So just wanted to give quick shout outs to that. Um, the song Nevermind, which I uh, uh, talked about earlier, the lyrics, I'm not ready as I'll ever be. I climb the walls. I fall into the sea. I'm not ready as I'll ever be. And I suppose your guess is more or less as bad as mine. I love that. The wordplay in that is fantastic. Yeah, that would be mine also for that. Um, the la- Like just the last, just the last line even there. I suppose your guess is more or less as bad as mine. Um he, beautiful very good very very good uh i just wanted to point out in the previous song the ledge which is kind of a short story about from the perspective of uh, a guy standing on the ledge after you assume a girl broke up with him or something uh sure. priest kneel silent all is still policeman reaches from the cell watching him watch him try his watch him try to try his best there'll be no metal pinned to his chest um yep. just just fun turns of phrases there that's very <laughs> uh, Fun turns of phrases for yes. a very dire situation, yes. which is kind of the magic of it is that even in these like down and out dire circumstances, he's still having fun. There's still a level of playfulness in these lyrics that shine through regardless of even how the song sounds sonically. You still get that it's fun, you know? Yes, I agree. Uh, next would be Valentine. Can I share my, before you share your favorite lyric, can I share my favorite lyric from that? Of course. It's the yes. second verse, or it's a chorus rather. If you were a pill, uh, I'd take a handful at my well and I'd knock you back with something sweet and strong. Plenty of times you wake up in February makeup like a fool and the morning star, you're gone. Um, I love that. That's one of, that's an incredibly, um, it's a very evocative. Um, and I also like that it's kind of to the same cadence as the verse in your Best American Girl by Mitski. <laughs> if you, <laughs> oh, if damn. you were a pill, I'd take a... Oh, God. You know what? This worked better in my head. I'm not even going to fucking attempt this. DM us with your attempt to fit in <laughs> that lyric, that verse into um, Your Best American Girl by Mitski. Because I'm not going to even try. I know. That was embarrassing. <laughs> my my lyric... my I have the same lyric written down uh, for The Ledge, uh, Mason, by the way. Those are my favorite lyrics from The Ledge as well. Yes. Uh, also... You briefly mentioned this as if this was the right answer, but you were a rock band guy over a guitar hero guy. I was both, man. I had both. I was rock. Okay. I was guitar hero first, and then we had the rock bands when I got my PS3. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was. I was both. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm a guitar hero guy to the day I die. I did have rock band, but I always was like, I man, guitar hero was just the first and dude, guitar hero so rocks. Better. We vaca- when we vacation in Michigan. We go to the same like kind of arcade sort of, um, and like there's like a go kart rack and and mini and mini uh, uh, mini golf there. Uh, it's in Southern Michigan, and they have a guitar hero like kind of arcade game. Uh, yes. Spend a lot, awful lot of tokens on that motherfucker. I love playing guitar hero. So, uh, what was your song on that machine? Do you remember? Goodness gracious. Um. I don't. I feel like on the console, it was My Name is Jonas. Uh, nice. Love to play My Name yes. is Jonas. Yeah. I love that. 
Uh, I just want to I just want to talk about uh, Skyway and can't hardly wait just real quick. Then yeah. I'll get into some fast facts yes. and then we'll do the thing we do to end this segment. Uh, yes. Skyway, though, it's probably the only ballad on the on the uh, on the album. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful little song. Uh, my favorite lyrics are, oh, then one day I saw you walking down that little one way where the place I'd catch my ride most every day. There wasn't a damn thing I could do or say up in the skyway that's just like a, that is a little story just in one verse that's beautiful writing i just think i just think that's so beautiful from such a gruff and wild and raucous band it's just there yeah. all the time it's awesome i i uh co-sign everything you said my lyrics from this one but you take the skyway it don't move at all like a subway it's got bums when it's cold like any other place it's warm up inside sitting down and waiting for a ride beneath the skyway uh beautiful Beautiful. And then what's yours from, from Can't Hardly Wait? From Can't Hardly Wait, uh, like I said, my Mercedes Valuable Player for this is just the songwriting and the lyrics. Yeah. But my my favorite, the still to this day, lights flash in the evening through, through a hole in the, the drapes. Hole in the drapes. In the drapes. I'll be home. When I'm Sweet, sleeping, <laughs> this is isn't working. Okay. I can't hardly <laughs> wait. Yeah, that's wait. it. I mean, that's just that's just fucking it. I mean, just those four lines have never left me, and I don't think they will ever leave my mind. They're just yeah. exactly the particular kind of feeling where you're young and you have a lot of energy and you don't know what to do with it, and you just wanna get out but you don't or you're too afraid to leave it was like exactly the song i needed to hear right before i went off to college my that's my mercedes valuable player at mason you know what just give me yours then we'll do the recommends yeah. then i'll hit you with the fast facts real quick my mercedes valuable player i think is just the song can't hardly wait um it's it's i like the rest of the album but this album really i like the rest of the album but i don't it, it hits different just because the song is on there uh for me the lyrics here, Jesus ride besides me. He never buys any smokes. Hurry up, hurry up. Ain't you got enough of this stuff? Ashtray floors, dirty clothes, and filthy jokes. Um, uh, Perfect. Yes. Uh, I don't know why when I was a kid that one resonated with me. I guess I liked music about people that were tired of the life that they were living. Um, still sure. stands out to me nowadays. It's, it's a much sadder lyric now than when I heard it before. It was kind of exciting. It was like, oh, man. This is a potential life you could live. And now I'm just like, God totally. damn, it sounds like it was exhausting to be Paul Westerberg and the replacements. <laughs> I am happy to be a yes. podcast host instead of a rock star. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which, you know what, Mason? Nowadays, podcast hosts are the modern day rock star. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I would say. Yep. So, you know, we, fuck you, Paul Westerberg. Yeah, yeah. You know, we used to, we used to look to the news for information and the comedians for jokes. But now we yes. have to comedians for information yes. and the news yes. for jokes. Oh, you ever fuck that? yes, dude. You ever notice that? Oh, my God. That's pretty have cool. Have you ever noticed that you drive on a parkway but park in a driveway? <laughs> have you ever noticed that, Mason? No. Stop asking me. Stop asking Sorry. me if I've noticed that. Sorry. I, I haven't. Sorry. I haven't. I keep All telling right. you. Jesus fucking Christ, every day with me. I'm sorry. I okay. will stop asking you fuck. that. All right. What's your uh, fast facts? <laughs> Give me those Shut fun. the fuck up. This is a full recommend for me. Uh, this is a great album. I'm not going to say that it's a 
perfect 10 out of 10 album, but uh, this is this is the highest recommendation I can give it, which is a full-fledged recommend. Mason, do you recommend this album? Big same. Full recommend. I think this is even the, probably the best place to start with this band, and if you're interested, you can go backwards, forwards, all around time, and then dip into Paul Westerberg's solo stuff and his other projects. It's a good, good classic rock album, as far as I'm concerned, belongs in the canon. Let's get some motherfucking fast facts. There we go. Okay. The replacement's history began in Minneapolis in 1978 when 19-year-old Bob Stinson gave his 11-year-old brother Tommy Stinson a bass guitar to keep him off the streets. That year, Bob met Mars, Mars being the drummer, Chris Mars, with Mars playing, or was he the drummer? I'm sorry. Did I fuck that up completely? Do Chris you have that? Mars is you have the that? drummer. Chris Mars in- is the drummer. Okay. That's right. With Mars playing guitar and then switching to drums, the trio called themselves Dog Breath and began covering songs by Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, and Yes, but with no singer. One day, Westerberg, who was a janitor at the U.S. Senator nice. David Durenberger's office. He literally was doing some Goodwill hunting shit, nice. like quite literally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he was walking home from work, heard the band playing at Stinson's house. After being impressed by the band's performance, Westerberg regularly listened in after work. Mars knew Westerberg and invited him in over to jam. Westerberg was unaware of Mars drummed in actually the band that he was listening to, which was Dog Breath. I'm going to quick transition into this next fact because it's directly related. Dog Breath ended up auditioning several vocalists, including a hippie. This is just what the, this is what I read at. This is the this language they use, including a hippie who read lyrics off a sheet. The band eventually found a vocalist, but Westerberg wanted to be the singer and took him aside one day. Uh, them being him being dog breath yep. and said, or no, him being the singer, excuse me, and says, the band doesn't like you. <laughs> and then he left. So it's Westerberg doing some, some entertainment industry fucking mind games there yep. to get him to leave. Uh, the vocalist soon left and Westerberg replaced him as the singer of the replacements. What do you think about that, Mason? Not how I do that. Not how I would do that. Can't endorse that behavior. Sure. It's a cool fact though. It kind of uh, feeds into the bad boy uh devil may care kind of uh aura around the band though um yeah interesting i like it some of the best fun facts are often things that we shouldn't do yes you know what i mean yes good good models for behavior sometimes you need models on on how you <laughs> no we're just getting a little <laughs> clap on the zoom window <laughs> the first time he's ever been <laughs> I'm just fucking hitting Mason with the in-jokes. Sorry, folks. Yeah, uh, yeah. The replacements gained local notoriety following their first live performance because of Tommy Stinson's young age. Again, he's eight years younger than his brother Bob, yeah. and he's playing in this band. Uh, early shows were consistently tight and became more aggressive following the release of their EP Stink in 1982. As their stylistic repertoire began to expand with the writing and recording of Hootenanny the following year, the band's increasingly antagonistic stage show left them with a reputation for their rowdy, often drunken live shows. Those Again, they were those fucking little rascals with the alfalfa hair and the fucking suspenders. Uh, They were banned permanently from SNL in 1986. As one reviewer succinctly observed, the band could quite be, quote, mouthing profanities into the camera, stumbling into each other, falling down, dropping their instruments, and generally behaving 
like the apathetic drunks that they were. Nice. Mason, what's your take on that? Nice. Cool. Sound like some cool dudes. Sound like some guys that you'd want to see a fucking rock band show at. We're going to get a little, some more claps going on reactions <laughs> in, in the Zoom here. All right. Please be quiet. Please to meet me is the only album <laughs> recorded by the band as a trio. After their previous album, Tim, guitarist Bob Stinson, I have it as, was either kicked out of the band uh, or quit of due, his, due to his own volition, possibly kicked out of the band for drug problems, but it seemed like everybody sort of had a drug problem in the band, or at least that is the impression that you would get. Yes. Um, the song Alex Chilton, like we were saying, is named after Alex Chilton, who is the front man for their favorite group of all time, Big Star. Big Star would be a great band to bring on this show. I, I love Big Star. Yes, let's bring them on the show. A hundred percent. They can be, and he can be heard on the album actually playing some guitar fills in Can't Hardly Wait, believe it or not. Alex Chilton can. Good guy. Good guy. Paint it back. And in 2012, Paste Magazine. Paste. Never heard of them. Uh, <laughs> Paste placed the record at number 70 on its list of the 80 best albums of the 1980s. So there you go. But I would still say that the replacements are just overall in, you know, sort of to sum it all up here, they're just sort of an underrated band. They're not really the first or second band. I think that people think of for fair reasons, but I I still wanted to bring them on this show to give them a shout out because they have great music. I could be completely wrong with this read. And so yell at me in my DMs if I, if you think I'm wrong and, and teach me something. But like I was listening to this album this time, I think that they were bigger than uh, and more popular probably than the Velvet Underground ever were. But I get a similar kind of like anyone that's listened to this this music started a band or was in a band at some point sort of thing. That legend that Brian sure. Eno has says about Velvet Underground and Nico about how everyone had who had it. And I feel like you probably say that about earlier replacement stuff but it's you you get their uh, their influence is kind of undeniable um i think and um just just it i do agree with you that they are uh, uh somewhat underrated and i think that um it's it's nice of you to bring this album on the show thank you chef and i think it also is worth noting as well before they broke up they only released two more albums one in 1989 and one in 1990 i haven't heard those albums they briefly got back mm-hmm. together but not really for any yeah i mean real stuff they did a they did an album called dead man's pop uh which it just seems to be just songs from their past mm-hmm. either live versions or remasters of stuff yeah and then so, bob stinson passes you know, away in 1995 which is a big big bummer a big thing yeah. so not the most like deep cut thing I could have brought on, no, but no. I do think the replacements are underrated. Yeah. I do think this album, like you said, Mason is the place to start with them. So I think it's, I think this was worthy show fodder. Yes. Uh, I agree. I'm just saying it for me. I agree. I agree. Are we ready to talk about the motherfucking movie now? Yes, chef. Okay. Um, you brought this, well, you brought this one yes. on Mason, but I actually, I want to, I want to sort of, ask you the questions here to get us yes. started on that. Can I do that? Definitely. So do you want me to preview my, my bit for this season or my, uh, yes, okay. I do. So, uh, end of last season, we're thinking about moving forward. Nothing's changed too much really in terms of the show, except for us buying Quibi, of course. Um, of course, but I told Noah, I like doing this, the underrated, uh, thing here. Um, but I have a long watch list on either letterbox.com or just in general 
and it's hard for me to sit down and be like, I am going to take time and chunk off stuff from this, this watch list here. And I thought, wait a minute, I have a podcast. I can just bring this on and I would also have someone to talk about it with. No, uh, yes. so it wouldn't just be me, me doing this for my my loyal Letterboxd followers. Uh, <laughs> that was an yeah, awful thing I just said. Uh, anyways, so this is yeah. a movie. So this is the new, for Mason, sort of, I guess, um, organizing principle of it's on the list. I'm going to be taking things off my list that have been on Whoa. my list. And this movie this week has been on my list for a long time. It's a classic Mason thing where I start a movie and then I never finish it. So I restart it again. Classic. A couple months, year later, still never finish it. Uh, but today, baby, we finished it. And this week we are talking about Carl Franklin's uh, 1992 film, One False Move. Claps, snaps, claps, snaps, claps, move. snaps, yes. snaps, claps. All right, Mason. Hey, hey. So you, you've, you've, uh, hey, buddy, how's it going? Yeah. Uh, you've, hey, my name, it's good to see you. Um, <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> um, you, you picked this movie. Uh, it sounds like going forward, you're going to take things off your list and, uh, you know, still try and follow the principle of, oh, I've never seen this. This is still probably yeah, gonna be an and underrated maybe type every thing. Once in a while, if I'm like, oh, I really feel the need to rewatch something or other, want to bring off a movie that I do think is underrated that I've seen before, definitely going to do that. It was just, I thought this would be a fun thing. I would also uh, check some things off my to do list here. And uh, yeah, that's that's it. Well, you know what they say? They say two things. They say a bird in the, they say um, you killed more. Kill more birds with moss than you do with a stone. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that's that's uh-huh. what they say. That's uh-huh. actually the only thing I was going to say there. Okay, so um, <laughs> Mason, yep. Uh, yep. one false move one false directed move. by Carl Franklin from 1992. You, I know you picked it because it was on your list. You said you had seen it and then, you know part of it and then not finished it. But why this movie? Why pick this movie of any movie you could have brought onto the show? I, I think it was um, I had done a little mini kind of Carl Franklin. I so I had seen earlier this summer um, both Out of Time and Devil in a Blue Dress and liked both a lot. And then I knew that Carl this was. Carl Franklin had directed a movie prior to this or had a somewhat of a career prior to this, but this was very much seen when it came out as a debut feature, really put his name sure. on the map. Um, and he, he was also on my radar um, because he directed a bunch of episodes for the second season of Mindhunter about the Atlanta child murders. And sure. normally, normally you don't notice directing in TV um, at least on first watch, I don't think um, that makes a good TV director is their ability to kind of just bleed into the thing of the show, do the work. Um, watching The Shield, uh, actually, you can it's not quite the case anymore. But in any case, uh, I, I don't think that's the case anymore, rather. In any case, I was watching season two of Mindhunter and I saw the name Carl Franklin pop up during this stretch in the Atlanta Child Murders. And there's some really interesting um directorial choices that he made that put his and i was like oh who's this director looked him up so he was the guy that was made this movie that i could never finish <laughs> and then also made um huh. these uh a couple of other movies that i had heard were really good um the other two movies that i mentioned before so i was thinking what's what i kind of want to kick off this new plan with mine with this kind of just seemed like the obvious choice it was a good excuse for me to actually sit down sure. and finish the damn thing and also um really really enjoyed some of his other work and wanted to see kind of where everything started with this 
with his career at least. That makes sense. I mean, that just that just sort of lines up. That makes a lot of sense, Mason. So, uh congratulations Thank you. Uh, on Thank that. You. Um I Knew who Carl Franklin was, but only in the name and in the abstract that this guy is a director who has made movies that people that either I follow on Letterboxd seem to like, Devil in a Blue Dress being probably his most popular yeah. and most successful mm-hmm. of his movies. I had sort of seen people watching that. I don't actually know what it's about, to be honest with you. I probably won't before I dive in. I actually like not knowing what movies are about for the most part mm-hmm. uh, before I dive in. I think that's more fun, to be honest with mm-hmm. you. Um, and Out of Time just kind of seems like it, – it looks like it will be when I ultimately watch it, like what I'll just call a quote-unquote comfort movie for me yeah. because – Com- uh, the kinds of movies because I was actually having this conversation the other day with my buddy Paolo shout out to Paolo Paolo we love uh, you bud. if you're listening to this we love you Paolo um, he was asking me because he was you know Sean Connery passed away obviously oh, so true. rip in yeah. peace to the king uh, and he was telling me yeah I was rewatching an older Bond because Connery passed away and I was like oh are you a Bond guy I didn't know that about you and he's like yeah I am a Bond guy I used to watch him a lot with my dad I was like oh that's nice and he was like yeah they're basically comfort movies for me what are your comfort movies and I don't really think about that to be honest with you like that's not really something that I really like think about because honestly I think a lot of my like quote unquote comfort watches are more TV driven Uh, The Simpsons Seinfeld yeah uh, yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff. And so I don't, I, I just kept thinking about it and I'm like, yeah, my, I guess my, my like genre of comfort movies are like comedies that have definitely not aged well <laughs> from the nineties and two thousands. Yeah. Uh, and then sports movies and then cable action movies. Yeah. If that makes sense. Does that, do you know what I mean when I say that? I know like exactly a cable what you mean movie? and out of time is right like in that kind of canon like i watched it just because it was on prime or something and it was like a rainy day in august or something and i'm like i need an inside movie and i put that on it was just the just the vibe for that it would only honestly like that's a movie that i love that i gave my whole time and attention to um it's such a fun it's like a perfect like three three and a half star like kind of suspense thriller and you do kind of when i when you're watching it you do kind of miss that it's the the action isn't uh, broken up with like commercial breaks you kind of expect it sometimes <laughs> it's a very like it's a great movie it's 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 so intense it like kind of it's one of those movies where you just like kind of feel like a screw tightening and uh sure. you're never sure of, like when it's going to catch basically and you're just kind of feeling this like kind of uh, this plot tighten around Denzel Washington uh really tremendous fun movie but like i said um definitely uh, you can pause it and watch some like 30 second commercial breaks during certain, like after certain set pieces. <laughs> and you feel like you yeah, have well, the true experience. We need the directors, but for TV cut where every like 25 to 30 minutes, there's a beer commercial, an ED commercial, <laughs> yeah. and then like an insurance commercial. Yeah. Just like one after the other, just to really go, okay, now I can check my phone, you know, send yeah, texts, yeah. you know, go to the bathroom, whatever I need to Refill do. Refill on some m um, So those yeah. are, refill on some M&Ms, drink your own shit, you know, whatever you need to do, you know. So, hey, you know, whatever you jerk off, maybe for a little bit, you know, eat your own hair, you know, whatever you do. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I don't know, stub your toe on purpose, you know, whatever. (laughs) So those those are my comfort, like, genre 
genres, <laughs> so right, to speak. Right. Those are like the movies that I find very comforting because they don't require a lot of brain power. No. They're usually fun. Yeah. Um, and they're sometimes fun in ways that they're not meant to be fun, which is fun for me as a viewer. Not fun when you're a filmmaker. You're like, damn, that really didn't come across the way I wanted it to, or damn, that didn't work. But as a viewer, yeah. it can be very fun sometimes. So, never seen Devil in a Blue Dress. Never seen Out of Time. Out of Time is actually the one I'd like to watch next of his, just for the reasons I just outlined. So, I was very excited to watch this because I'm like, okay, I'll finally get to see what this Carl Franklin guy is all about. And Mason, I am sorry to say, I did not like this movie I a whole lot. Couldn't, I truly was not, uh, that does not surprise me, is what I'll say. <laughs> did not strike me as a Noah okay. movie uh, when I was watching it. But we're That's here to fair. talk about I it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> We're here to talk about it, baby. It's a podcast. I literally told my because I watched it yesterday, and then I had dinner with my dad. Trust me, his dinner was a lot better than his. <laughs> it lunch was cold was. pasta and hot chicken. <laughs> it was cold pasta, hot chicken, a, pu- a, a pumpkin that was flavored like a pancake, <laughs> and, an, uh, and a greening potato. And a, I was gonna, say, yeah, I was gonna say a tomato with just a little bit of green still left in it, like an <laughs> underripe tomato. Um, yeah, what a fucker. What a dumbass my dad is. Um, so, yeah, not not crazy about this movie, but also just not, like, that, like, mad about watching it either. Sure, like, I, okay. it was just kind of yeah. one of those for me where I was just, like, I literally told my dad, he's like, what did you have to watch for the podcast? I said, "It's oh, it's called One False Move. It's from the early 90s. It's like a, you know, a cop crime thriller, basically. And he was like, oh, well, did you like it? And I didn't know how to answer the question because... I didn't like it, but I didn't overtly dislike it either. Sure. I just mm-hmm. feel very sort of middle of the road, neutral about it. There were some things I actually did like about it. There were some things that I didn't like about it. It all just kind of felt sure. like it offset itself. So um, just, you know, I don't know. I'll, I would I don't want to shit on the movie because, you know, that's not really yeah, why I'm here. I think I'm right. just here to sort of talk about it with you. So what did, what did you like about the movie, Mason? I kind of liked the whole thing, man. Honestly, this was like right up my, um, this was right up my alley. I love just like crime and kind of noir detectively kind of thriller stuff. And I especially love it when it's set like outside of a big city. Um, sure. I was, you know, this is very akin to like blood simple, the Cohen's first movie. Or No Country I was for thinking Old Men. The, yeah, like closer to I, that. The two movies that, that came to mind for me, I was going to say it later, but Blood Simple, without a doubt, is definitely in a similar vein. And then I thought even more in a similar vein, Hell or High Water from a couple years ago. Oh, do you remember Hell or High Water? I do remember Hell or High Water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that, definitely. Um, but I think that, like, I don't know why I couldn't finish this movie, but... Like, watching it now... I couldn't finish this movie in the past. Watching it now, though, like, I really just just kind of just vibe and fucked with it, honestly. Um, it's sure. It's kind of... You know, people read science fiction because they like to go... In, or fan, science fiction and fantasy because they like to go into other worlds. Totally. I like to read detective and crime fiction because I feel like those are the... Were, not that you don't get this in science fiction or other in other genres, but this is what I kind of get from... Crime fiction, I really like um, the characters in these movies and these books and these TV shows and stuff. Um, The kind of the archetypes, these people that are like kind of within the, 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 in this movie in particular, kind of just using this movie as an example, 
the relationships in this movie that are formed by a bunch of ill-advised decisions, we'll say. Uh, sure. And you don't realize how connected some of these characters are at the beginning. Definitely. Yeah, and the the way that the plot doles out, the story doles out, and the more that you learn about these folks, the more that their actions make sense, and the more... Um, as an audience member, at least I was became uh, the more this movie went on, the less sure I knew the less sure about what the characters were going to do. I became so sure, uh, which I think is a really exciting thing for me personally and watching it. So both times that I watched it, I never got farther than um, that um, the barbecue that's sort of in the middle of the movie that um, hurricane, okay. Uh, Hurricane has with uh, the two LA cops where they're kind of shooting right. the shit. Never got much farther than that um, because I think that when I heard that this was like a crime movie or a detective movie or whatever or a thriller, I was expecting it to be moving a lot quicker than it was. And this isn't sure. like an action movie or anything. This is a movie that's very patient. Not at all. Yeah, this is a movie that's very patient and it's more about these kind of disparate characters the actions that they make and how that affects um, how that's affected their past and how it sort of brought them all to this like kind of perfect point in star city, Arkansas, where they can't run from these things anymore. Um, There's drugs, there's stabbings. It's a brutal fucking movie. It starts with a very upsetting home invasion scene that I think also kind of was like, I need to take a break before I finish this when I watched this when I was younger. Um, but yeah, I just, I really fucked with this. I was happy that I finally finished it and kind of got to see what this whole thing was about. Well, like you were saying, it does start out as a home invasion movie. If you don't know anything about this movie and you're going in completely cold, you would think, well, the rest of this movie is going to be a home invasion movie because that's how it starts out. Yeah. And it is very much the, you know, there's like, Two, you know, they they tell you, at least in screenwriting class or, you know, whatever, when you're reading those screenwriting books, that there's, like, two real solid ways to start a a story, you know, like a screenplay or whatever. There's, like, I don't remember, like, I'll just call it gradual, where, you know, slowly, piece by piece, things come together. And then there's what they refer to, I guess, as end media res, which is just, like, you're dropped in the fucking middle of everything. Yeah. This, to me, was... You're dropped in the middle of fucking everything because I did not know what was going on at the very beginning at all. And to be honest with you, it kind of came across to me as just sort of sloppy filmmaking to a certain degree where I'm like, oh, am I supposed to know the relationship of this? Am I supposed to know that, you know, this person is this person or, you know, it just sort of felt a little bit confusing and not that being confused during a movie is like, you don't have to always know right. what's going on in order for a movie to be successful. But in this case, while I was watching it, I definitely was like, this is either it definitely intentional and I'm just not liking the way it's being done or it just kind of feels sloppy to me. But either way, I didn't necessarily get off on the best foot with this movie, but I do think that it does get better as it goes along. And I do think that there are moments that I really, really enjoyed 
mostly from the criminal end of things. I found the criminals to be more interesting than the cops. I largely did too. I, um, and I agree. I definitely, even though, you know, I'm more enthusiastic about this movie than you are. I definitely agree with you. Um, that this movie gives you a lot of information and characters off the jump and you, it's difficult to kind of sift through and figure out who you're supposed to be paying attention to. Um, totally. Cause you are brought into this house party. You're having a good time with these kids or these folks that are just hanging out. Uh, and then they get fucking murdered <laughs> and then they go <laughs> immediately. immediately and then they have to go to this other guy's house to get the drugs and the money. And then that guy gets fucking murdered. Um, but like I said, I, but, but I think that um, it kind of makes sense for me why they did that. I And I kind of appreciate that the movie just leans out. It starts off very fat and they just like keep cutting, so to speak, cutting back and, and thinning out the movie there. And I think to the movie's credit, uh, I was watching this and it's a very upsetting home invasion scene. And Carl Franklin does a couple like great just... Um, there's a couple things in this in this first scene here that I think really show his um, his 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 ability and his talent as a filmmaker, um, and also I think like kind of what makes him special is his he he gets you to care about people very quickly because um, even though like you're with these folks these these people that are just hanging out you know dancing or whatever in this home. Sure. You kind of grieve for them once they're murdered, and they're murdered in such a horrific way. And I'm just watching. I was watching this movie this time, and just thinking about like how you know, in all of October or whatever, watch you know, you watch slasher movies where people are kind of like disposed of left and right, and this is like a rare movie where you feel like kind of the weight of the death in it almost, um, and you care about people when they're hurt, and it's very viscerally upsetting. But I'm like, damn, like this is this is what I think you're supposed to feel about the loss of human life almost, you know? Okay. Um, but again, it's an upsetting thing. And I do think that the movie gives you a lot of information and, you know, for context, this is the third time I've seen that scene technically because I watched it probably didn't get much farther than, um, the introduction of hurricane Dixon the first time I watched it and then started it again, got a little farther than that. Um, but I think that that, you know, um, I don't know. I agree with you, but I also I can appreciate that scene as, as, as filmmaking and as a way to portray information. And I also think that the reason why like we those, those the criminal scenes hit so much is because we've spent uh, so much time with them and we've seen them do these horrific things. And anytime they're on screen, I'm just like anytime they're on screen, I'm like a magnet to whatever they're fucking doing. And anytime they're off screen, I do like what's going on. I like the, uh, the hurricane Dixon scenes. I like how he's the character of him. And I love Bill Paxton's performance. Um, speaking of Bill Paxton from last week or Bill Pullman, yeah. uh, R.I.P. King, honestly, to Bill Paxton. Yes. I forgot that he died and it's just like, God damn this. That's what I thought you were saying is like, speaking of Bill Paxton that he had recently passed away, but yes, the classic Bill, and Bill Pullman, Paxton, Bill Paxton conundrum, yeah. which one am I looking at? Does not matter? But yes, because Bill Paxton is actually a much better actor yeah. uh, than Bill Pullman is, even though I don't know if Bill Paxton could do Lone Star. I don't know if Bill Paxton, could, I don't think Bill Paxton could do Lone Star, but I also don't think Bill Pullman could do um, Hurricane Dixon. Hurricane Dixon. Um, Absolutely. God, just uh, miss that guy. I love that guy. Um, but I, all to say, the stuff with the criminals is infinitely more compelling, and I 
think that there's like an hour and 20 minute long movie of that that's really, really fucking good and you, I could fuck with. But I really like that this movie plays and the writing here um, plays so many tricks with your um, uh, feelings towards Hurricane Dixon um, and that sure. character. Um, I think. Well, yeah, the ending doesn't really work if you don't spend equal time with yeah. Hurricane and the criminals because that's what you're that's what you're working toward. Right. Are we going to talk about the ending in frank terms on this episode or not? I... That's a good question because I don't want I kind of don't want the ending to be spoiled. Okay. So I don't Let's not spoil I don't it want then. to. I I want people if you're interested in this, I kind of if I I'm going to just come out in front and say I'm going to recommend this movie. I don't think it's quite a full recommend, but if you generally go for stuff like blood simple or you go for like Coheny kind of stuff or even like other detective movies or uh you know if you're a fan of uh the shield <laughs> you know or whatever oh okay all right a little cross promotion uh, there mason okay no worries uh, it's fans of that and you haven't seen this i feel like you really got to get it on get it on your radar um I was thinking about how long this movie's been on my list. It's probably been since at least I was in college. I had one teacher that was really, really uh, liked this movie a lot. Um, Interesting. And I was thinking, like, if I am a teacher at an art school in Chicago, I'm teaching screenwriting or whatever. I think it was specifically John Rangel, who was my uh, one of my screenwriting teachers. Um, Like, why would I want a 22 year old screen uh, aspiring screenwriter to watch this movie? And I'm sitting there watching this, and I'm like, I think that. What I what I personally would use this as movie as a teaching tool is is to teach about character and kind of how characters' decisions can reveal story and also reveal themselves. Sure. Um, that is also my Mercedes valuable player for this for this movie is the ensemble. If I can just kind of get in front of that okay. too, my Mercedes valuable player is the ensemble here. I think it's very rare that you get a genre movie um, with such a strong. Um, cast, and I think that that's it, it might just because that's where more of my um, expertise, my, my uh, uh, interests are, but I tend to like the ensembles in crime movies and stuff like that more than other sure. works of genre fiction, and this one is really one. Uh, I was going to try to single out either just um, Bill Paxton's performance. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton, I think, was really, really fucking good in here. Um, I uh, forgot to have the IMDb up, so I couldn't shout out my other favorite actors in this. Okay. And I feel bad All right. that I didn't. Are you talking about Cinda Williams? Definitely talk about Cinda Williams as uh, Fantasia. Um, who's the guy that plays Pluto? Fuck. He would have... Michael Beach. Michael Beach. Michael Beach fucking rocks. Um, he was going to get the solo bolo Mercedes Valuable player in this just because he's such a good... It's such a good... Um, uh, he's a great character. great character definitely and it's all in michael beach's performance as pluto but it was like i can't sort of single out just one character even the two la cops i really love um jim metzler as dud cole earl billings as mcfeely i wish they did more with mcfeely honestly i feel like that's kind if i can lob one criticism towards it i feel like they kind of drop that the what you could do with that character a little bit well it's it's a kind of a, it's kind of interesting and again I would like to rewatch this movie during a week where there isn't a highly contested election True. happening because my mind was definitely on other things, to be quite honest with you. That's fair. While I was watching it. And I think upon rewatch, I would like this movie more than I did this time. But I will say, and maybe I just completely missed this and it is more prevalent, but the sort of thing about Bill Paxton's relationship to this LA co- to these LA cops is that he really wants to prove to them 
that he's not some yeah. podunk town yeah. sheriff. That's, it's, yeah, that's know. essential. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, I don't know if I fully got that until the scene in the diner where they're talking about him and they don't know that he can hear them. And that's when I realized, mm-hmm. oh, he really wants their admiration and they just think that he's, you know, nothing but, you know, a, a, what is the, a hill of beans, I Yeah, guess. he's like kind of a, a, a hillbilly or whatever. I, yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that's also really important to the character. That became apparent to me in the beginning when they're all on speakerphone before they come to LA where he like calls them and is on the phone with the chief of police. And he's like, kind of basically he's acting like Paul Westerberg to Alex Chilton to the LA chief of police. (laughs) Um, and they're all sort of in this dark room in LA and he's going off about like trying to find common ground with, with these cops. And it's kind of funny because like, it's a racist cop talking to other racist cops um, about what's yes. the crime in their town. And these guys are just like, check out this fucking guy. You know, like, what's up with this guy? It's so it's so funny. Uh, like, he's such like a dork in front of these guys. These other like uh, virulent racists who probably share some of the people in that room share similar opinions, probably to think some of the things that Bill Paxton is saying. One could speculate it would not Definitely. be outside of the realm of possibility. That's all I'm saying. Um, but no, I think I I. That scene's really great, though, the one that you pointed out. The one where he's overhears yes. them shit-talking him towards the end there. Um, and there, you know, there, there, are, there are really good moments in this. I think the, the convenience store scene with, I want to say his name was McDonald, Cher, uh, like Ranger McDonald yes. or whatever it that is. Guy, with, um, the, with the good-ass square jaw there. Just, I don't know. Yeah, square jaw McDonald yep. when he walks into the fucking AMPM or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, and he is giving him kind of a hard time, and you can tell that there's kind of something up. And, you know, Billy Bob Thornton's kind of telling uh, Cinda Williams, like, you know, just give me the money, you know, and, like, let's take care of this. And then they, you know, pull him over. I really liked that whole stuff. I thought the Cinda Williams, Billy Bob Thornton relationship was very interesting. Again, we're not talking about the end of the movie because it is a nice little twist that they do have at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. That whole thing was very interesting and I did definitely did not see it coming. Um, But overall, you know, I think that I think the election did play a big hand in me not feeling like I could pay super close attention to what was going on. I would like to watch this one again, but it definitely has a little bit lower energy than maybe you would think uh, of this kind of movie. Definitely a little bit more of like, what is the term? A pot, like a A watching a pot boil. Yeah. It's it's more of a pot pot boiler. boiler. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to say like when I hear the term slow burn, the movie that pops into my head is drive for whatever reason. Cause I remember people using that term a lot at that point to describe that movie. And it was the first time I think I'd heard that term used to describe a movie. So I attach to it. I don't want to say slow burn and people think that this is drive where there's going to be interrupted by car chases. There's a car chase in this movie that's really tense and really good, but it's just because of like you as an audience member know more about the situation than either person involved in the car chase. It's very low speed. It's very, but it's very high um, tension. Um, But all to say that it's not a, a, a chase or an action movie. It's really uh, you, there are a couple shootouts. There's some stuff that does happen. It does. There's moments of violence that do pop, but I, I'm with you, man. It's a pot boiler. You really just kind of got to let it simmer and just really got to be patient with it. I think. Exactly. So I do just before we get into sort of the ending 
uh, stuff. I do want to pull or not pull attention, but like give attention to the fact that Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epson wrote the script for this Mm -hmm. movie. Um, in addition to Billy Bob Thornton being arguably the main antagonist of the film as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to quickly go through some of Billy Bob's, uh, like, writing credits. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he does have a couple writing credits uh, to his name. This being his first writing credit, his first screen credit, according to IMDb. Yes. Uh, there is a movie he wrote in 1996 called A Family Thing, directed by Richard Pierce, starring Robert Duvall and James Earl Jones. Ooh, okay. Sort of like a family drama, it seems to be. Earl Pilcher Jr. runs an equipment rental outfit in Arkansas, of course, hmm. just like this movie. Lives with his wife and kids and parents and rarely takes off his gimme cap. Hmm. His mother dies, leaving a letter explaining he's not her natural son, uh, but the son of a black woman who died in childbirth. So that's sort of the setup for that. Oh, he wrote okay. the screenplay for that. Not really sure exactly what else goes on in that, but he is credited with the writing credit in this. I'm not going through every single one of his credits, just some of the ones that stood out to me. I think, obviously, the thing he's most well-known for writing is Sling Blade yeah. mm-hmm. uh, back in 1996. Have you seen Sling Blade? No. I think that was an early like Netflix queue movie for me. I think it was streaming on Netflix at one point, and it was in some, I think, movie book that I had, so I put it in there, but never saw it. I, I think it was as well because I remember watching it probably too young to actually fully get what was going on. I think I was like in eighth grade, and I just knew that Billy Bob Thornton played a guy with mental, you know, handicaps. you know, like yeah. he had mental yeah, problems, yeah. you know, he had a mental handicap in some way, and I was just like, that's cool. Like, I, <laughs> I got to see Billy Bob Thornton do that, you know, and I don't remember really anything about the movie. Uh, I've heard that it's actually good and that, you know, when you're a kid, you're a dumb kid and you don't get it. But he wrote that. It was actually a play that was adapted uh, to the movie, and I think Billy Bob Thornton wrote the play as well and obviously plays Carl Childers in that. Um, he also wrote the movie The Gift, directed by Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. A fortune teller with extrasensory perception is asked to help find a young woman who has a mysterious who has mysteriously disappeared, mm. starring Kate Blanchett, Keanu Reeves, and Katie Holmes. That came out in the year two thousand. Have you seen the gift? No, but I believe that that was actually, uh, and it was a uh, Lakeshore Entertainment film. So I saw that poster Classic. all the time at my old job. And Giovanni Ribisi is in this movie as well. And Greg Kinnear and Hilary Swank. J.K. Simmons. Giovanni Ribisi, I'm pretty sure, was at the same screening of Roma as I was back in 2018 at the Vista Theater, back when you could see movies in person. Remember Roma? Did you see Roma? I actually saw Roma at Chapman University. They had a screening for it at the Felino Theater at Dodge. But you know what? I bet Giovanni Ribisi tells people that he was at the same screening of Roma as Mason. McGuire, yeah, he so does. I know. Go. We 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 talk sometimes. <laughs> yeah, we talk sometimes. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and then the only other movie that I think that's worth uh, pointing out that the last thing that he's credited of writing uh, Billy Bob Thornton is is Jane Mansfield's Car. Yes. Uh, have you seen, and he also directed this movie. Have you seen this movie or know anything about it? The only thing I really know about it is that it really bugged Mariska Hargitay because she's Jane Mansfield's daughter uh, and was actually yes. in the car with her mother 
when her mother uh, was decapitated <laughs> in a car accident. So it strikes me that this movie was probably not made with a, a, a with some consideration to. That's all I want to say. It, it, you can you can. Well, here's here's the logline for the movie that Marishka Hargitay doesn't yeah. like. Alabama, 1969, the death of a clan's estranged wife and her mother brings together two very different families. Do the scars of the past hide differences that will tear them apart or expose truths that could lead to unexpected collisions? Sounds, that is what this movie's sounds about. Sounds like an all right concept for a movie. You got Bobby Duvall in this. John Hurt, speaking of from last week, uh, Billy Bob himself. Oh, shout out. Kevin Bacon, Robert Patrick, Ray Stevenson, uh, Francis O'Connor. All your favorites. Ron White. Ron White. Really? Ron, Ron, White. Ron White of... Tater Salad himself. I got a sign that's... <laughs> get him out of here. Fuck you, Ron White. Get the fuck out of Jane Mansfield's car. You're going to get bloated up. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's all I wanted to yeah. say about uh, Billy Bob Thornton's writing credits. But it is kind of interesting that he's had this like weird side career as a writer and then sometimes as a director, but it's kind of one of those where it's like, yeah, he tried to sort of be, you know, a Ben Affleck type and it just didn't really work out in the same way as Ben it's Affleck inter- did. That's at least my impression. It's, of it. it's interesting that his kind of career, those kind of career, he, it looks like looking at IMDb, it looks like he was like just kind of a working TV actor in LA in the eighties there. And was probably writing, doing other stuff on the side. Um, and then he, Chronologically speaking, this had to have been an early kind of—I don't want to say hit, but it was it made some impressions, I would think. Um, and then his career kind of dovetails until it gets to Sling Blade. It's interesting, I think, that they were that this career was together to a point, and then he just his acting career just just totally eclipsed the writing career there. Um, and now he's on he also directed Goliath. the movie All the Pretty Horses, which came out in 2000, which I remember we read in my high school filmmaking class. And my teacher was like, this isn't necessarily a good movie, but I have a bunch of copies for it. So we're going to read it in class to talk about screenplays. All right. And that's what we did for All the Pretty Horses. And I don't think I've ever seen it, but I think Matt Damon is in All the Pretty Horses, uh, which was directed by Billy Bob bl- Thornton, based on the novel by Cormac McCarthy. Matt Damon, Penelope Cruz, Penelope Cruz, and... Um, Sam Shepard. Uh, it was his birthday today when we recorded. Robert Patrick again. Here's what else. Have you seen... Um, I feel like this movie also came into my life, or it was, uh, aside from the recommendation from my teacher, because I, was watch- I watched A Simple Plan... In about 2014, 2015. Okay. Have you ever seen a simple plan? I thought that he, well, I thought that he had written that, and that yeah. was like another one of his like big claims to fame, but he didn't. I think that was a Sam Raimi project through and through that he just acted. Uh, but I haven't seen Sam it. Sam Raimi directed it. Scott Smith, uh, who wrote the novel for a simple plan, also wrote the screenplay. Pretty good movie. Gotcha. Like it a lot. Um, I don't think I like, I, I like it a lot. I respect it a lot. Don't think I like it as much as I liked one. I was just going to say, you said pretty good movie, like it a lot. And I'm like, one of those is true. One of those. Yeah. That's, that's (laughs) the behind one of these doors is a movie that I think is either good or that I like a lot. And you open either door and it's just (laughs) a DVD copy of, of a simple plan and you leave much more confused than you entered the labyrinth. Um, that's true. So do you, that's so true. do you want to wrap up discussion on this? I gave my MVP yes. and my recommendation, my recommendo for this particular motion picture, but what do you, how do you feel about this? 
I want to leave people in suspense because I want to give you the fast facts first before I give you my Mercedes Valuable Player and Wreck, okay? Let's do it. All right. Uh, When the film was completed, the original plan was for it to be straight to video, but stronger-than-expected word-of-mouth praise convinced the studio, which is titled IRS, which is a fucking insane name to have a movie studio be, because the IRS might be like everybody's least favorite entity in the entire world, maybe outside of the United States government. Uh, It was sent to theaters because of higher-than-expected word-of-mouth praise. So could have been a straight-to-video release. Turned out to be not so. Uh, Part of the film takes place in Odessa, Texas. Billy Bob Thornton played the football coach of the Perriman Panthers in Friday Night Lights, the movie version. And Perriman High School, in the movie, is located in Mason. Final guess on where that high school is located. Uh, Odessa, Texas. Bing, bing, bing. You are a winner. Congratulations. You get another fast fact. (laughs) Oh, shit. Billy Bob Thornton. Fuck! Billy Bob Thornton and Cinda Williams got married after filming was completed. Yay! Yay. They were also divorced before the film was released two years later. Oh. Boo! (laughs) Studio audience wasn't (laughs) sure how to feel about that one. Well, it was a yay at first, and then a aww. You're you're really going to like this one, Mason. Are you ready for this? This is probably going to be your favorite fast fact of the whole episode. Okay, yep, I'm getting ready. I got my Zyrtec to the right of me here, just getting ready for you to give me that fast fact. Please be quiet while I read it. (laughs) Film critic Gene Siskel voted this his favorite movie of 1992. Hell yeah, Gene. Hell yeah. I actually knew that. Uh, I was trying to find okay. if they t- if there was a YouTube <laughs> update cool. of um, I was trying to find if there was a YouTube upload of them talking about this on the program, but I couldn't find it. So uh, that's weird because you would think that if he was they I don't I'd actually have never seen a full episode of uh, Siskel and Ebert. Uh, to be honest with you, I know that's a Mason yes. fave, but um, it's surprising that there wouldn't be a there wouldn't be a YouTube available of it if it was like his favorite. They probably would do like a top ten or like yeah, a favorites of the I year thing, tried right? To find like a best of ninety two, and I came up uh, uh, empty handed. Roger himself, though King Raj, King Raj stars for this here motion picture. Congrats, congrats to one false move for getting four stars from Raj. Um, and then I got some just fast facts about Carl Franklin himself because yes. he actually is a little bit of an interesting fellow himself. Yes. Uh, he got a D- BA in theater arts and then immediately moved, I think at Berkeley, I believe, and immediately moved to New York city with hopes of becoming an actor. One of his first jobs was acting in the New York Shakespeare festival where he appeared in 12th night Timon of Athens and Cymbeline. Franklin also performed off Broadway with the public theater, also known as the pub Renaissance man, Renaissance man. Renaissance man with a renaissance plan. Franklin began his on-screen career in the film Five on the Black Hand Side in 1973. From there, he acted in a string of guest roles on television shows such as Barnaby Jones, the episode entitled Focus on Fear. He was also in The Rockford Files, Good Times, The Incredible Hulk, Hulk, and The Streets of San Francisco. Over the years, Franklin's looks have typically landed him roles playing men of power, such as members of the police force or military officials. Hmm. How about that? that? You like that? Sure. I'm glad that he's working. I'm glad that he's working. I think he's a talented fella. Um, I like the movies that he's made that I've seen so far. I have one more fast fact for you. Can I say that? I would love to hear one more fast fact. 
He got his master's in filmmaking from the prestigious AFI, American Film Institute. Hell yeah. And he landed – yeah, I know. Check that out. I love – it actually is cool to, like, see people from AFI yeah. because it's like, wow, you're from yeah. AFI. Uh, and he got a job with Roger Corman in 1989, nice. believe that or not. He was working at Concord Films. Franklin gained experience working on low-budget films, cranking out six films in two years from 1989 to 1990. Franklin worked on films Nowhere to Run, Eagle of the Eye 2, Inside the Enemy, and Full Phantom Thigh, Full Fathom 5. Try and say that five times fucking fast, respectively, under Concord Films. Those are my fast facts about Carl Franklin and One False Move. My Mercedes Valuable Player is a co-Mercedes Valuable Player for this. My first recipient of the Mercedes Valuable Player is Cinda Williams. I think she's the most interesting character in this movie. And the performance that I felt most invested in throughout, I don't think on accident. Mm -hmm. I think she is arguably... Arguably the protagonist. I would say her and Hurricane Dixon are probably... It's more of a two-hander yeah, situation. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's true. I like that. And then my other recipient of the Mercedes Valuable Player is going to be the setting of Star City, Arkansas. Like you mm. said, Mason, I also like a southern uh, setting. I also like when detective things, things that are a little bit more neo-noir or whatever, take place outside of an L.A. or New York. So Star City, Arkansas gets my other Mercedes Valuable Player Award just because I do love myself a Southern setting. And I'm going to give this a conditional recommend, even though I personally wasn't, like, crazy about it. I do think that it truly is, like, if you like this kind of shit and you haven't seen it, it will be right up your alley. And I have a feeling upon rewatch, when there's not an election going on, I would enjoy this a lot more. Yeah. I feel like I'd be able to focus on it more. So it's going to get a conditional wreck from me. That's all I have to say. Mason, we finished, we finished the, episode. the episode. Where can the folks find you can us? Find, you can find us on uh, linked, uh, Linktree in the description there where you can find our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of that kind of stuff. You can also shoot us an email at um, everybody wants to, the number two, get on the list at gmail.com where we can read your um, email on air again email us some quibby pitches email us some menu items email us your worst we want to hear your absolute worst yes lunch. we want to hear those three yeah. things quibby quibby shows worst lunch you've ever had uh or the what was the third thing? oh yeah menu yes. items for it's on the menu uh, please email us those or dm us on social media as we will read yes them on the show. i will recommend i think that i recommended this when i started the book but now that i finished it i really want to just double down on it i want to recommend octavia butler's book the parable of the sower um at this moment we're recording it is a very uncertain time um and it is regardless of the outcome it's going to not i don't think be the back to brunch situation that a lot of people think it's going to be there's a lot of work that needs to be done still parable of the sower is a uh sometimes terrifying book but ultimately gives you this sense of um hope and optimism for um and 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 also just i think a, a is a good sort of beginner template for a society outside of what we're used to um and that could be a potentially good thing i i found it very inspiring very good again parable of the sower by octavia butler probably buy it go to bookshop.com buy that from your local bookstore support them um it's uh it's it's tough out there it's the holiday season gotta support the bookstores gotta support folks that aren't jeff bezos 
um, so that we can have something of a, of a functional, nice society at the end of this pandemic stuff. Uh, watch out for your neighbors. Watch out for your friends. Follow me on Instagram at Hot Dog to Bicky or listen to my other podcast, The Barna Podcast about the Shield, or follow me on Letterboxd under my name Noah. Where can the folks find you? Under your name yes. Noah. Under your under name, my name Noah. That's my name Noah. <laughs> yeah, that's how I talk. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, my um, shit's in the link tree as well. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. You can listen to my other podcast, uh, my favorite podcast. You can listen to the episode that will be coming out on Thursday with Marf- with our friend, actually, Mason, Ian Campbell. Ian, Chef Ian, back on the, on Chef the, Ian. On the, on the, right, on the main feed there, the, my favorite podcast feed. <laughs> on, on the airwaves, maybe he's hitting the airwaves once again. We are actually talking about podcasts on my what? favorite podcast, a little bit of a fucking Inception moment, Mason, which I know is your favorite yes. movie. Uh, and anytime, every time I come, I just do the Inception noise. The yeah, yeah. I've heard Mason do it. It's awesome. I love yeah. when he does mm-hmm. it. Um, so you can listen to that episode when it comes out on all the podcast platforms. Uh, yeah. Like I said, my my socials and all that shit are in the link tree. My little other recommendo will be if you have HBO Max, How to with John Wilson. Great show. It's like. Uh, Joe Para, Joe Para's show, mm-hmm. which the full name escapes Joe me Para, at the uh, moment. What Joe Para talks to you. Joe Para talks mm-hmm. to you. Yes, Joe Para. Ta- I can't remember if it's with you or to you. I can never remember. But anyway, Joe Para through the lens of all gas, no breaks is how I've been pitching it yeah, to people yeah. who haven't seen the show. So if you have HBO Max, give it a watch. Nathan Fielder is an executive producer on it, so you know it's going to be good. And also Nathan's episode of the A Twenty Four podcast with Alexa Demi, I also listened to. Very good. Very interesting conversation had between Sounds those like two it. folks. And, and and I can't tell if you guys out there know how old Alexa Demi actually is because some websites I go to say she was born in 1990, which would make her about 30 years old. And some websites I've gone to say that she's 25. Hmm. And I can't tell. Hmm. I'm more partial to say that she's 30, which is kind of crazy listening to the episode. It made me feel like she was closer to 25, but I'm going to guess 30 based on the sources that have been giving me that information. Those are my recommends. That's the show. Mason, thanks for doing the show with me again. Thanks for doing the show with me again, Noah. Thanks for listening, everybody. I don't think we said it last time, so I just want to say it this time and make sure it's heard. Black lives matter. Black trans lives matter. Defund, abolish the police. Um, fuck Donald Trump and we'll get through this um, together I promise I love you all see you next time amen bye guys